Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 40th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Eric Horndahl, CEO and co-founder at Renoviso. Eric was a major contributor to two successful web companies in the Boston area, that being Flipkey, which was acquired by TripAdvisor, and BuyerZone, which was acquired by Read Business Information. If you've ever had a major home improvement project, for example, like replacing your windows, it's typically not a great experience. But Renoviso is looking to change that by disrupting the home improvement industry with a whole new approach through transparency, technology, and world-class customer service. Renoviso's investors are Corrigan Ventures, Bessemer Venture Partners, NextU Ventures, FJ Labs, plus a who's who list of angel investors. This interview is timely as they just recently raised $7 million in venture funding, so we had a lot to talk about. In this episode, we cover Eric's background and his experience at BuyerZone, which includes so many great alumni, his experience at Flipkey, where they built a vacation rental marketplace, the aha moment behind Renoviso and their unique business model, advice for first-time founders raising capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. It's hard to believe that this is our 40th episode. It's been a blast interviewing so many great people in the tech industry. We have an amazing roster of guests coming up, but I want to make sure that we're giving our audience what they want. So if there are any guests that you'd like to hear from in terms of their background story and points of advice, please feel free to shoot us an email at podcastadventurefiz.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Eric. Where'd you grow up? Tell us about your background. Yeah, so my background, so I'm originally from the New England area. I grew up in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, which is sort of northeastern Massachusetts. And, um, you know, lived there pretty much until I was 18. And then um, uh, went to Babson College uh, for my undergraduate business degree and uh, was really drawn there, you know, because at a pretty young age, I, I sort of knew I wanted to go into business. Um, I was the, the kid who was reading Business Week and, and Fortune Magazine when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they had an exceptional entrepreneurship program. And uh, I, honestly, it was a transformational experience for me, particularly going up, growing up in a pretty homogeneous environment like, like Chelmsford. Um, it really gave me the opportunity to meet people all around the world and people with different backgrounds and so forth. And really was the foundation of ultimately um, what my career was all about. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously Babson gets plenty of props as far as their rankings as you know top entrepreneurship program but we did uh do a deep dive recently of the you know a lot of the notable alums that have gone through either their undergraduate or mba program and it it was mind-blowing like some of the names that we discovered so it's uh it's really impressive absolutely yeah it was an incredible experience and particularly nowadays you know entrepreneurship is more common and and sort of undergraduate education but back then this was the late 90s um, you know, we, for instance, freshman year, we we started as a class. We actually started a business on campus, uh, and it was amazing. Just you know what you learn at such an early age from that experience. Absolutely, and it, like one of the more notable ones that you know recently just kind of made headlines was uh, the founder of of Ring, so Jamie Simonoff and his acquisition, which uh, which was very impressive. Yeah, Jamie and I actually graduated in the same class. Did you uh, really? Kinda, yeah, I, I I know Jamie. We weren't you know super close or anything like that, but. The classes at Babson are, you know, 400 or less. Yeah. Um, so you know pretty much everyone, and and I knew Jamie, and uh, I think he was actually that freshman class that I talked about. I think he was in that same class with me, and he's obviously been tremendously successful. So it's great for Babson, and and we'll take it. <laughs> Absolutely. So after you graduated, what's uh, what was the foundation of you know starting your career? 
Yeah. So I actually uh, took a job and I moved out West and I was really interested in being part of this. This was the dot-com, the original dot-com boom in the late nineties. I graduated from Babson in 1999. I had done an internship at uh, Price Waterhouse in, uh, when I was in college. It was a special program where you did an internship over the busy season there and you took classes, you know, you did coursework in the summer. And uh, I leveraged my relationships there to get some interviews at, at PwC um, in San Jose and then spent about eight months, I believe, at PwC. Got exposed to a ton of different things. There was a lot going on in terms of uh, public offerings and acquisitions. And, uh, but, but ultimately wanted to get more in on the business side. Um, and a good friend of mine from Babson, who I was living with at the time, uh, had a job at eBay in the IT department. And um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I ended up applying for a position in the finance group at eBay. Um, and I got a really interesting opportunity at a really young age to lead uh, the FP&A group for eBay's international business, um, which was pretty nascent at the time. And uh, it was just an awesome opportunity. So that's FP&A. So that's financial planning and analysis. So what does that's that mean? Correct. What were you actually doing? Yeah, and we did. Uh, so worked on a couple of acquisitions that we did, um, mm -hmm. again, for eBay's international business unit, um, reported directly to the um, the senior vice president who was running uh, that division, uh, Matt Bannock, who was, was really became a mentor to me at that time and worked with some super talented uh, people on the finance team. We did a lot of, this was before business analytics and, and data analysts. So we did quite a bit of that as well, like pricing analysis, um, you know, figuring out market entries. And, you know, it was a, it was a great foundational uh, job and many of the skills that I learned there, I, I still use today. Um, and it was, it was very helpful. So I spent a little over two years, I believe, at eBay and then ultimately wanted to kind of transition away from finance and, and more on, on the business side and was looking at two opportunities. One uh, was I had an opportunity to potentially move to the UK to work as a category manager at eBay UK or um, I was exploring starting my own company with, with uh, my friend from Babson. Um, and we ultimately did that. You know, we moved to San Diego and started a, a business called Inversions. This was in the summer of 2002. Um, and Inversions was a home technology solutions provider, uh, which offered consumers a better way to buy home entertainment, home networking, and home management. This was before, you know, the Internet of Things, but you know, things like Lutron, automated lighting systems, and, and certainly doing things like home theater. This was sort of like a geek squad. Um, uh, type of type of business, but but more higher end in terms of more equipment and, and so forth. And uh, the goal was starting in San Diego and then expanding from there. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, I, I was involved in that business for about a year. Um, it was more ended up becoming more of a lifestyle business. Um, and so, I, and I really wanted to move back east uh, to be closer to family and for some personal reasons. So ultimately, left uh, left Inversions, and then my co-founder, you know, kept running that company for for several years after that. Interesting. That was a business that was, you know, services based, helping out with home installation of something different than what yeah. you're doing now. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So then you move back east, and uh, the infamous Buyer Zone, which is a company that just doesn't get enough credit in the Boston tech scene, and you look at the alumni from Buyer Zone, you know, Sam Zales, David Cancel, Scott Healy, and so many others. So um, I'm sure you learned a lot while you were there. Yeah, Buyer Zone was an incredible experience, and like you said. Um, has an incredible alumni. Actually, Craig Bloom uh, recently just sold his company and he raised very little, if any, capital mm -hmm. um, for north of $40 million. And so 
Um, yeah, and there's incredible alumni of, of, of people that have, have gone on to do some really, really impressive things. Um, so BuyerZone was essentially a business that connected small businesses looking for pricing information with vendors who could then service those customers. So effectively, it was a lead generation business, but very similar to other models like LendingTree and what, what, what is now known as HomeAdvisor, which was then uh, called ServiceMagic. And, uh, but, but BuyerZone was specifically for SMB purchases. So my role there was I landed a job there as a category manager. This is in summer of 2003 and was actually hired by uh, Brian Waldman, who uh, later I, I connected with uh, to co-found Renoviso with. Um, and pretty quickly after I started there, I was spun out to report directly to the founder. Her name's Mian Lee. Um, she doesn't get a lot of credit as well, but she's a super talented individual and she founded the company and was a huge part of their success. And uh, my role there was to take the model, which was already working pretty well for office related products and services. So things like copiers and phone systems and, and, and so forth and expand that into new verticals. And so, um, you know, myself and, and the team around me, you know, successfully expanded the business from primarily office segments to things like steel buildings and modular homes and security services and uh, lots of construction and industrial equipment. I remember going out on the road and, and meeting with Caterpillar and John Deere and I'll be out in the Midwest um, as part of the sales process to bring these um, these companies on as vendors. Um, and so my role there was to manage to, to, to determine what categories we were going to go into and then work really closely with the sales team on signing up new vendors who were going to serve as the suppliers and then directly manage all of the traffic programs, um, which for us was mostly paid search, but this was where, where I really cut my teeth in terms of uh, customer acquisition and, and paid marketing. And this was when, you know, really early days of AdWords. Um, so I, I was there from the very beginning. And, and that was a question I was going to ask. So, uh, you know, BuyerZone was early on in the lead gen business model that's pretty common today. Um, so was it, you know, Google AdWords, it was just talking, you know, like Google, I don't know the size of the company at that point, but um, you know, was that the, the secret sauce of how they started to get generate traffic? Yeah. I mean, paid search was, yeah. uh, at that time, 70 plus percent of the, of the traffic. We had some pretty good, um, organic search performance as well. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we were probably managing, I don't know, 15, $20 million of spend at, at one point. Um, most of which was, was paid search. Most of which was through Google or Yahoo at the time, which was, which was more prominent. And then, you know, I think what, what made us different is, is we were incredibly sophisticated in terms of how we deployed that spend. Um, you know, you mentioned we were talking offline about uh, Coco Labs, and I think uh, they're certainly very sophisticated as well. And, and I think, you know, BuyerZone in those early days, you know, at, for that time was, was very sophisticated. And it really fit my skill set really well coming from a quantitative finance background. Um, you know, those are exactly, I've had a lot of success in, in working with other people that came from that sort of background as well um, in, in terms of performance marketing. So it just lined up really well and the, and the timing was perfect. There's obviously so many tools to help you track, you know, your ad spend. But back then, I would imagine it must have been very manual or you guys built your own like homegrown tools to track the spend and, you know, what's the, the conversion and click-through rates, like what, what was it like back then? Versus yeah, I mean, it was a now. lot of Excel <laughs> um, and a lot of homegrown uh, tools, you know, in yeah. terms of uh, getting the data that you needed and then building the models. Um, but again, it, it lined up perfectly with with what I did at eBay. So it, mm -hmm. it, it just, I sort of naturally 
came very natural to me and, and then other people on my, on my team as well. So uh, it was a great experience and certainly the foundation for, I mean, we're, you know, paid search in terms of its core fundamentals hasn't really changed that much. Obviously the technology is different. The tool, the, you know, the, the tools and the methodology is different and the, and the sort of tactics, you know, grow over time, but the, the fundamentals remain very much the same and certainly was able to, to do a lot of uh, leverage, a lot of the, the stuff that I learned at BuyerZone at, at FlipKey and, and still at Renoviso today as well. Perfect segue. So how did you land at FlipKey? Yeah. So, uh, so BuyerZone exited in January of 2007, um, had a really nice exit, sold the company to read business information. And I stayed on for a couple of years after the acquisition and then left right around the same time that Sam Zales, our CEO, who now is, um, like you said, uh, really doing really, really well at Car Gurus. Um, and uh, so left in, in December of 2008, and I got connected to TJ Mahoney, who's the uh, one of the co-founders and CEO at Flipkey. And they had just raised a strategic uh, investment from TripAdvisor, um, which acquired a majority of, of a stake in the company. Um, but, you know, I, I was sort of dabbling on this user-generated content uh, company in the auto repair space with a colleague of mine from BuyerZone, and uh, who's a super smart guy that I, that I was working with. And we were kind of early stages, you know, kind of just batting around ideas um, in the space. And I was really interested to connect to TJ to learn more about how their review platform um, worked. And they essentially had built this platform to um, to collect uh, guest reviews from professional property managers in the vacation rental space. And then we're going to leverage that to, to build a vacation rental marketplace business. And so as I was talking to TJ, you know, they had a, um, an opportunity, uh, a job opportunity to join the three co-founders on the management team and build out their owner subscription business. So this was the direct to rent, you know, rental owners that were looking to rent the property on the platform. And uh, my role was to come in and essentially build that, uh, build that business from scratch and working with TJ and Jeremy and Carl, who were the three co-founders at a pretty early stage. I think we had about 10 employees or maybe even a little bit less than that. And they had raised the, the, the $4 million round from, from TripAdvisor um, in the summer of that year. So, uh, so my early days were really focused on uh, building supply. So figuring out how to attract rental owners to the platform, um, building out all the operations behind that platform. So customer service, trust and safety. Um, we had a retention team. And then, of course, the, the traffic marketing as well, like attracting travelers to the site. But, but the early days were more focused on building the sort of guts of the marketplace um, and the owner how business. Do how, do you, how do you build out the supply side? Because this is a... The time frame was pre, you know, Airbnb of people just listing their homes and uh, having people stay at them. So, like, how did you build up this supply side of homeowners saying, "Sure, I'll rent out my home to a stranger through a website"? Yeah, and so HomeAway was around at the time, right? And so they owned properties like VRBO, and so there were certainly people that were were doing that. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we were incredibly sophisticated as well there in terms of our direct marketing. So it was it was not paid search or um, any sort of inbound marketing. It was very much, you know, old school direct mail and, and doing a lot of email marketing and just a lot of very guerrilla tactics. And, um, you know, we had a great team of people that that uh, that I was lucky enough to find at, uh, at Flipkey who helped build that out. But we recruited over 100,000 owners uh, to the platform over the first few years. Uh, I should say the first several years. And um, yeah, and again, it, it just shows you that and I always have this philosophy when I'm recruiting marketing people, if, if somebody has had success managing and building out something in one channel 
the principles are very similar across all of these channels. Um, the tactics are, of course, different, but it's not that difficult to, to, to sort of cross-pollinate yourself um, across different marketing channels. And that's what we're able to do. And uh, we were able to find people who were interested in renting their home. And then I think Airbnb came along and really sort of um, helped increase awareness of this as, a, as an option, right? Um, in terms of, hey, you know, if you have a, a secondary home um, or a property that is being underutilized, this is a great way to make um, some extra income. And, and so we sort of benefited from that as well. So you oversaw all of marketing. So it was the supply side, then ultimately, you know, consumers of actually renting out homes, correct? That is correct. Yep. So, um, yeah, so I was also responsible for building out Flipkey's traffic and, you know, we grew traffic from essentially zero um, at, at the time to, uh, I think in 2015, we did more than hundred million sessions, unique visitor sessions on an annual basis. So a lot of traffic growth and, you know, there was a number of different channels from, you know, organic search optimization was a big, big part of, of that. Certainly paid search. Paid search was a much smaller part of the portfolio compared to, say, BuyerZone. Um, we were doing Facebook at that point in time had become very prominent and, and it started, you know, the advertising program. So we were pretty sophisticated in terms of our retargeting programs within within the Facebook platform. Um, and then also email and affiliate program in a number of different channels. But um, yeah, that was a huge part of, part of our success. And I was lucky enough too to be working pretty closely with the folks at TripAdvisor because we were part of the family. And um, you know, it was amazing to see how incredibly sophisticated TripAdvisor was about traffic acquisition. I think that's something that you know they're still known for today. It's just their ability to um, to to drive customer acquisition through free and uh, mostly free channels. Um, you know, particularly on the SEO side. And I was going to ask prior to the, um, you know, the the actual final acquisition when they absorbed the whole the rest of the the company, uh, how much access did you have to TripAdvisor that maybe was beneficial to help you figure out problems? Because I think that was, um, you know, that was a blessing of you know having that strategic funding from the eight hundred pound travel gorilla, right? That understood data and marketing SEO. So uh, were you able to lean on? people at TripAdvisor or were you still independent and kind of had to figure it out mostly yourself? I mean, we were certainly independent and, um, you know, had to run the business almost like a, a, you know, we had our own cash balance and we had to make sure that we didn't run out of cash and, Mm -hmm. um, and all that, but we certainly had the advantage of being able to tap into those resources and TripAdvisor ultimately wanted us to be successful and we were powering their vacation rental business, um, which was a huge strategic initiative at the time. And so, you know, they were incredibly supportive and we learned. So anytime, you know, that we needed something, we could go to somebody at TripAdvisor um, to do so. But what was great and what really attracted me to the opportunity as well is the fact that, you know, I had an equity stake in the company very much like if I joined a VC backed company, um, but there was a known exit period. So part of the way that the investment was structured is that TripAdvisor would buy the rest of the company, um, you know, four years later from, from the date of the initial investment. So that was really attractive to me personally, because I knew that I wanted to start a company. I mean, I know we'll talk about Renaviso. And so I, there was a defined timeline that was there from, from the exit. And that was super attractive to me personally. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like the ideal situation. <laughs> as long as I'm sure there was tied to metrics and growth of the business, but uh, to ultimately have that knowing that, you know, if you hit your goals, that's going to be the outcome. So uh, now you did finally hit that point of, okay, now it's time for me to go off and, and start another company, uh, which you've done with Renoviso. But, um, you know, I'm sure it, 
you know, the aha moment, it just doesn't magically happen overnight. Maybe you're exploring other ideas. If you have any ideas like that to share, that'd be cool. But you know, what was that aha moment of, you know, finally deciding that Renovisa was the right spot for you? Yeah. So the aha moment actually came a couple of years prior to founding Renovisa, which mm-hmm. was um, my wife and I moved from the city to the uh, suburbs. We, we live in North Andover, Massachusetts. We bought a home that was built in 1979 and still had the original windows. And my wife, Maura, really wanted new windows. And so she contacted one of the big replacement window companies and, and they came out to our house. It was a Saturday morning. I still remember this. Um, and we had a six-month-old baby at the time and we both had to be present. So they required both members of the of the family to be present to, so that you could essentially and the reason was that they wanted you to make a decision on the spot yeah um and so we spent three hours with this you know she's a very nice woman but going on and on about the windows and 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 it, the, and i just wanted a price you know I'm, I'm a numbers guy and a metrics guy and i wanted to know what the bottom line was going to be um and so she presented an outrageously high quote to us um, she then pressured us to make an immediate decision by saying like, this is the price today, you know, so here's the price. And then oh, by the way, here's the price if you decide today. So discounted immediately by 20%. And it just, it just not the way that I'm going nice. to make a purchasing decision. It feels like, you know, right. 1950. Um, and it's so a large expense. it's a big expense out of the Horndall pocket. Yeah. I mean, it was so. a $40,000 quote from yeah. what I remember. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it just really stuck with me and, and I did a lot of research after that. We ultimately didn't, um, do the windows at that point in time. We later did that with, with my company, Renoviso. But, um, as I was doing research online, I just found there was no transparent pricing. And I just, I kind of had been sort of writing down business ideas as I would encounter personal pain points. Right. And so, I have a, a notes, um, in my, in my iPhone mm-hmm. and was just kind of writing that stuff down. And then, Later, a couple of years later, when uh, I reconnected with my former colleague, Brian Waldman, who, who became my, my co-founder here, um, I had shared that idea and he had some ideas and I had some other ideas as well. And, you know, the original idea was a customer centric windows and doors e-tailer. And, and we sort of looked at it as the tire rack for for windows and doors. And, you know, over time, you know, we sort of evolved the concept into what it is today. Uh, but that was the original idea. And it was based on uh, this experience. And Brian had also had an experience with a roofing and siding project with kind of at the end of the project, you know, while the project was being completed, you know, he had a, he got stuck with a big change order that was never communicated to him. And, and so, you know, so he, he the pain point resonated with him as well. And he was, you know, super excited about the idea and we sort of evolved it together um, to what it later became. Well, let's talk about Renoviso today. So what, what what does your company do and what's the business model? Yeah, so our vision is to completely transform how home renovation uh, projects happen via an end-to-end uh, tech-enabled model. And so um, I think what makes us really different is the fact that you know we control the entire experience. So with when you as a customer are dealing with Renoviso, um, we're not, it's not a lead generation business. We're not just handing you off to some contractor who's going to handle the um, the service and, and kind of we step away. Um, the, the way the service works is homeowners get fully custom online pricing for their project, which includes installation. And then we leverage our technology platform and our highly curated installer network to facilitate the entire process through the completion of the project. So we don't employ a lead uh, model. And our goal is to ultimately become the largest home renovation company in the country. Um, we currently handle 
exterior renovation projects. So windows, doors, roofing, and siding primarily um, throughout Eastern New England, the greater New York or the New York tri-state area, and then greater Philadelphia, which were both markets that we launched uh, last year. Yeah, and when I was you know learning more about your company over you know the time frame that you've been running it, I did find it really impressive that you were actually the you know the the general contractor for these projects because I'm sure based on your background at Firezone and Flipkey of building marketplaces, it would have been very easy to replicate that model. And hey, you need roofing, you know, put your email address in, and we'll send you a quote, and then you're farming that out to you know 30 suppliers. But I thought it was interesting that you know someone shows up at the house with a Renoviso you know polo shirt and mm-hmm. you know it's uh you know it's, so you're owning this so that's a, the complexity of the business model is elevated astronomically that's correct and that was a very intentional decision um that was based on our experience you know brian and i had experiences in the lead generation business and we felt very strongly that in order to really build a transformational business and really solve the customer pain points in this space we had to control as much of the experience as possible um, because ultimately as a lead generation business, you know, you're not really solving a lot of the problems that customers face when, in terms of communication, in terms of pricing transparency, in terms of quality. Um, at the end of the day, all you're doing is your connection vehicle. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was incredibly important. It was an incredibly um, smart decision in retrospect, I believe, um, and has been a huge enable of our success. And our model has pr- produced exceptional customer outcomes um, which have resulted in a net promoter score of 80. And you know, for, for, for those in the audience who are familiar with that, it's an incredibly high score and really hard to achieve. And I credit our team and our amazing group of contractors um, uh, for that. And, and we have amazing customer reviews. And, and that is the thesis behind the business that if we deliver amazing customer outcomes, we're going to build this monster business that's going to be really hard to overcome just because we're going to have a ton of amazing reviews, and we're going to become the no-brainer choice for uh, for doing these projects. Yeah, obviously the the referrals will just you know when you uh, are doing work at a neighbor's house and you notice oh you're getting your roof done. My roof is you know probably, probably are in the same development. Our house is the same you know length of time. Probably need to be, who are you working with? And that referral just starts a spider web. Exactly. The other thing that I liked about um, Renoviso is the transparency. So if you jump online and you start going down the path of creating a quote, it's constantly updating the number to the point where you actually have a number at the end based on the options that you choose. And then it says, hey, if you want to meet to talk about this, then let's have your contact info versus you know, past experiences of first, we need your contact info before you get any information or data from us. So I thought, you know, just as a consumer point of view, I just felt um, drawn in and, and already feeling a level of trust through that model. That's right. And I think, uh, so we, we try to put the lens on as, you know, what do we want as homeowners? And I don't come from the construction industry. So uh, originally, and, and I sort of certainly know a lot about it now after three and a half years, but uh, I think, you know, Brian and I we were initially um, forming the business, took very much a homeowner centric view in terms of how we architected the model. And so, yeah, I mean, from from our standpoint as consumers, like you want to understand what the price is going to be or at least get an estimate without necessarily providing your email address or your phone number. And so the way it works is, you know, you get a customized price quote, which includes the installation. And that's incredibly hard because, 
you know, the vendors that we work with, the pricing is all in these big catalogs and it's very old school. And obviously the contractors, you know, all our pricing with them is pre-negotiated in order to provide accurate pricing. So, you know, you as a consumer get that customized uh, project quote, including the installation for your project online. And it's super easy. It takes just a few minutes and we don't gate it. And then if the customer's ready to take the next step, um, they'll tell us, essentially provide their content information. We'll then um, connect them. We'll pr essentially provide them with a project manager on our team who's responsible for facilitating the entire process from there. And then what we do is we send the contractor, we assign them a contractor to the project. Contractor goes out, does an on-site assessment, answers any questions, um, and then you know takes photos, takes notes, provides that information back to our team through our mobile app. Uh, one of the things I don't think we get a lot of credit for is we have pretty uh, incredibly sophisticated technology behind this in terms of being able to deliver this experience. And the app is part of this where we then get all the information that we need and we provide a final guaranteed quote uh, to the customer, which is usually right in line with the quote that people get online. Uh, sometimes the customer will make changes to the project that will obviously change the price. And at that point, if the customer wants to move forward, they would put down a 25% down payment for the project. And then we order the materials, schedule the installation, and then uh, do the installation and the walkthrough happens. So, you know, really there's no obligation on the customer's behalf until they have a final guaranteed quote. And, and they've also gotten to meet the uh, installer, the person that's going to be leading the crew that's doing the work, which I think is incredibly important and very different than every, most other companies in the industry that are sending a salesperson out. And you really never get to meet the person who's actually, or the, the, the person who's leading the crew, who's doing the work until after you've already committed. Now, compared to the experience you had of a salesperson showing up your house and giving this astronomical quote, is there um, a typical estimated savings that your model is able to provide to consumers versus what has historically been done? Yeah, so we, we've done a lot of secret shopper uh, studies because we're the only ones who have transparent pricing. Um, so it's not always easy to, to get pricing from some of our competitors. But uh, but absolutely, there is a, a savings you know, compared to you can certainly go to Home Depot and Lowe's and we're going to be uh, very competitive and provide more value from a pricing perspective and certainly a better service um, than what they can provide and, and, and many of our other competitors as well. So there's definitely a, I don't want to put a percentage on it, um, but there are definitely uh, savings, you know, relative to to you know many of our competitors, particularly those that have, you know, established reputations in the industry um, that are more like for like services. Now, you and uh, your co-founder Brian uh, both had you know great success stories under your belt uh, before starting Renoviso, but you weren't founders that had raised capital in the past. So, as two first-time uh, you know, well, you weren't a first time founder, but you know, this was kind of like the old company was a little bit different time in your life. Right. So, uh, we'll just call it your first time founder raising capital for the first time. What was that process like? Because you got some really, uh, you know, great angel investors plus, you know, uh, institutional investors. So what was that process like? Uh, cause I've always heard that that can be one of the biggest challenges of raising capital is, you know, it's not like you have a history that they can you know count on. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think what helped us is the fact that we were fairly experienced, right? And we had a track record, you know, we had a network of people, you know, so we've, we've talked about some of the folks like Sam Zales and Scott Healy are two people that come to mind and were incredibly helpful in terms of introductions. Um, you know, Brian and I had networks of people and had a reputation, right? So I had a track record at, at Flipkey, Brian and Buyer Zone. Brian had a track record as well. 
Um, and so we were able to leverage that. I think a little bit different than maybe somebody who's, you know, 25 years old, who doesn't have that track record um, and those connections. So, but you're right. It was the first time we've never been through it before. And so um, we tried to be as methodical and disciplined as possible going into that process. Really, um, you know, there's a ton of information that you can read online and there's, it's just amazing how much information is when I contrast it to the experience that I had in 2003, how much, how much more information is out there now with, you know, VCs blogging and just all the information that's out there. And so, you know, we were really, you know, we did a lot of work up front to make sure that we had our pitch deck down, we had our narrative down. Um, we had some early metrics of traction, you know, before we started to raise capital. And then we leveraged our connections and our relationships directly, um, you know, for introductions. And then, you know, Next View Ventures um, was, our, was the investor that was our first commitment and led our seed round. And they've been incredible. I, um, I couldn't recommend them enough. Um, you know, once you, once you land that initial commitment, then you start leveraging their connections and, and it kind of snowballs from there. And that, that's how it happened for us. I think the, um, the decision, you know, the, the, a pivotal point in that process was, was when NextView decided to uh, provide us with a term sheet. That was, you know, that was a really pivotal moment for the business at that point in time. So what advice would you give to, you know, founders in the same situation? It sounds like you were prepared, right? Uh, and you were leveraging your network to its fullest extent for intros, but um, you know, what, what, what advice would you give to other first-time founders that are embarking on this journey of raising capital? Like things that you didn't maybe know about until you went through the process. That's like, if I knew that now, I probably would have done things differently or just general advice. Yeah, I think uh, traction is obviously incredibly important and particularly as the rounds get larger now. And I think investors are look, particularly at the seed stage are looking for, you know, more traction. So, you know, one of the things that I didn't cover is, you know, so we built the product, we built the initial website. Um, which was an MVP, but it was designed to sort of test the hypothesis, right? Can we acquire customers? And I think, you know, one of the things that was really important, I think, for David Beisel at, at NextView was that we actually had customers and we actually had projects that we had completed. And, you know, he spoke to a few of those customers as part of the process to understand, you know, why did they choose to go with Renovisa? What attracted them to them to us? How did the project go? So I think it's really important to to try to hustle as much as you can to get a product built, get it into the market and do some early proving out of the hypothesis. Um, so that's one piece of advice that I would have. I think the narrative and the storytelling is incredibly important. You know, one thing that we did, I think that was incredibly helpful was, you know, we practiced our pitch in front of other entrepreneurs that we knew and people on our network and, and got feedback. And so, you know, before actually going to in, in investors. Um, and so the, the thorough preparation I mentioned obviously leveraging your contacts. Um, you know, the other thing I think is in terms of, you know, in the seed round, people are investing more on the vision. So it's important you have early traction, but you're not held as much to, to hard metrics like you will be later on in the rounds. So if you get an opportunity to raise maybe a little bit more money than you need, I would, I would take it because later on it's, it's all going to be about the numbers. Certainly the vision matters. Um, but I think in the seed round, it, it, it has an outweighed amount of importance you know, there's just not a lot of data that 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 seed investors are using to make make those investment decisions. Um, and so it's more about vision and storytelling and team and market size, et cetera. Building a company obviously has its ups and downs. So um, any uh, scars that you've gained throughout the process of uh, building out Renoviso, like biggest mistakes you've made thus far that uh, hindsight, you look back and be like, wow, we could have done that differently. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think the hardest thing for, and this is probably fairly common, but the the hardest and most important decisions to me are people decisions. And so, I think you know you, you probably heard the old adage, you know, hire very slow and methodically, and and fire fast, right? And 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 so you know, I, I found that it's really hard, and we found as a team that it's sometimes really hard to follow that advice. Um, you know, on the hiring side. You know, you need somebody and that, you know, you have that open role for a reason. It's really hard to, you know, the recruiting, as you know, Keith, is extremely competitive and really difficult. And you're looking, you're obviously looking for the best fit and you don't want to compromise on on, the, on any candidate. But at the end of the day, you, you know, you need somebody to come in and perform that role. So I think staying super disciplined about that hiring process. And then when when there's a mistake that's made and when it's a bad fit, I think, you know, making that decision and, and executing on that decision earlier is something that when I look back at, um, you know, for us, I think, you know, there are things we could have done differently, um, you know, from that perspective. And that applies uh, as well to, you know, business decisions and spend that you're making. I think, you know, we have a tendency to um, to get stuck on those, you know, there's a sunk cost there that we, we tend to keep there when, you know, we really should throw that away and make a decision based not sort of based on that. And I think that applies to people decisions. I think that applies to spending decisions. I think that applies to business decisions. So I would say that's probably the biggest piece of advice I, I would have, particularly around, around people decisions. What's your um, proudest accomplishment outside of, you know, personal life, uh, like your professional proudest accomplishment yet? Yeah, so I, I'm really proud of the team that we. I mean, I look back to you know Brian and I, and and kind of a. a I remember being at the library and, and various places as you're kind of, you know, uh, starting the business, and now you know we've got a team of more than 25 people of incredibly talented and and certainly you know way smarter people than, than I am, and I think um, it's where I'm incredibly proud of that, and and I'm also proud of the the customer experience. I mean, at the end of the day you know, we want to deliver an exceptional customer experience. And I'm really proud of, of, of the impact that we've had on our customers' lives by, by just making this purchase easier. And I think, you know, uh, one of the things, the founding principles that we had was to be extremely customer-centric. And it's easy to say, it's really hard to do. Um, and I'm really proud of the fact that, that you know, collectively the, the team at, at Renoviso has been able to do that and, um, and, and, and sort of live up to that vision. Yeah. And obviously you closed your most recent round of funding, 7 million earlier this year. So you've raised 12 million all in. So uh, I assume you guys are in, in growth mode in terms of continuing to build out the team and, and hiring, right? That's right. Um, yeah. And, and our vision is to continue to expand geographically and into new project types as well. Like right now, we're just in the exterior renovation services, which are huge markets and there's huge market potential. But certainly we plan on continuing to expand into other types of uh, home renovation purchases. And you're absolutely right. So, you know, we raised the round, $7 million round in February, which was led by Corrigin Ventures and then had strong participation from from our uh, existing investors, including Bessemer and Nextview, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, we have added a number of people to the team recently, and we do have two uh, two open positions as of right now um, that are incredibly important for us, one of which is a senior product manager and the other one, which is a visual designer. So uh, those are not easy positions to find. Um, but uh, if, if anyone out there listening um, is, is a good fit themselves or knows somebody that's a good fit, I would certainly appreciate um, any, any referrals that people can provide. And, of and then course, obviously, as a, as a customer, right, if, if, if um, you know, we believe that we are the best no-brainer option for, for consumers that are doing a window, roofing, siding, or door project, 
Um, and so, you know, would would love for you to check out Renoviso and, and give us a shot if you've got a need. Uh, it's it's one of the you know just being a homeowner myself. It's one of those things that you're like, oh, do we really have to do that project? But if there's a solution that is not, you know, that you know is reputable, that's going to get the job done, that's going to be competitively priced, it'll make it just so much easier for consumers to be like, yeah, okay, I, you know, the house is X number of years old. It's time to replace the roof. It's just part of home ownership. But the way that things have been done historically of just who do I call and, and like, right, and like right. try to get referrals. So it's just that if you could build that brand, I mean, that's a huge, massive, massive opportunity, which you already know. And I'm sure your investors know. <laughs> yeah. And we, we think we really have a, a 10X better solution, right? We think that the solution is incredibly empowering as a consumer, as opposed to being subject to the whims of contractors and salespeople. You can research pricing, research products on your own through our website. And, and we have a great team here too, that, and if you don't know what you want and you want to talk to somebody, um, we've got a team of experts that's that's willing to help people. Obviously, the pricing is fully transparent and very attractive, like you said, very competitive. Um, and we've got a systemized process and approach with the best, highly vetted installers and a, and a consultative team. And um, I I just don't think you can you can find a better option. I'm obviously super biased, <laughs> um, but but to to complete your project. Well, I'm excited that hopefully Renoviso is the next anchor consumer company in Boston, uh, Wayfair, which Nurse Shah is one of your angel investors, you know, one of the co-founders of Wayfair. They own, you know, the interior of the home, right? So now Renoviso will own the exterior as far as the remodeling and, and those types of projects. So we'll have the two you know, anchors to your home in Boston. That's right. Yeah. And there's been some great, uh, you know, local success stories recently, right? Copac, um, and I know so car gurus, yeah, car gurus, et cetera. And so hopefully, you know, we want to be in that next class of, of truly transformative, uh, consumer internet companies in, in Boston. And I think we're on our way and, um, you know, taking it step by step. Well, Eric, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate all your, you know, sharing your story and kind of your lessons learned along the way. And of course your words of wisdom. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.